All right, if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, I will read the entire chapter in just a moment. My grandmother's name was Dolores Branca. I knew her as Nanny. She was one of the most precious people I have ever known. She was intelligent. She was a World War II veteran. She enlisted in the Coast Guard at the end of World War II and worked the soda fountain at the commissary. She was curious. She was creative. I have paintings that she made in my dining room that are pleasant. I loved her. I still do. It was a privilege a few years ago to have her live in our home for a season as she attended this church, and I will never forget her communicating how she had truly begun to understand the grace of God through this church. She was also a very picky eater, and she basically ate the same thing every day. Oatmeal with dried cherries in the morning, a small piece of salmon and vegetables for lunch and so forth. She ate this way not because she had a finicky palate, but with great intentionality, which I learned about as she explained how each food provided a different health benefit. She was extremely strict about it. I remember when she was looking for a doctor after she moved up to Pennsylvania with us, that she visited, the first doctor she visited, she immediately fired after he attempted to help her relax in her eating habits and told her she should enjoy more things that she liked, like chocolate. He said to her, she was in her late 80s, you've made it, relax. That was it for him. And she was out, and then she informed me she didn't really like his beard anyway, either, so. She was scrupulous in her eating habits for one primary reason. Her mother, my great nanny, had a stroke in her later years and was severely disabled. And my nanny and my papa had taken care of her over the last decade of her life. And my nanny was understandably deeply worried that someday she would have a stroke as well. And so that explains the diet. It was sadly ironic in 2018, while with my family in Orlando, Florida, at a Disney World vacation, that I got a call at 4 a.m. from Harrisburg Hospital that my nanny had a stroke. And while she recovered very briefly, it was only a short matter of weeks that I received another call explaining that in the early morning hours, she had had another stroke and was found unresponsive. And that one, she never recovered from. And I lost my nanny. I tell you this story because I think it illustrates something about all of our lives. However hard we work, however hard we plan, however wise we are, however educated, however much we succeed, however much money we have, in the end, we have very little control over our lives. At least the control we have is across a small spectrum. We can be disciplined, we can plan well, we can exert every effort, but then the cancer hits. The car collides head on. The government intrudes. 
Now, I say all of this not to be fatalistic, but to be realistic. And this is the kind of thing that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is constantly calling us to remember, and the kind of thing we are reminded of in our text this morning. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 8, remembering that this is the word of God. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also a vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one eye see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. So here now, as we get into chapter 8, the preacher examines the authority structures in this world and finds that even the most wise, in the end, must find a way to live in the mysteries of God's activity in a fallen world that is often confusing, often perplexing, often does not line up with the ideal, a world that we have very little control over, and therefore a world in which we do well to entrust ourselves to God. Three points in this sermon. The first is this. He examines the authority of earthly kings, verses one through nine. Verse one, he transitions from chapter seven that we looked at last week where he laid out the value of wisdom teaching us that the heart of the wise lives with the end in view. 
to orient the way we live our lives in light of the death we all face. There are lessons about life to be learned at a funeral. But even that wisdom, in fact, the deepest, most profound wisdom we can attain to has significant limitations when it comes to understanding the baffling, disorienting realities of life in a fallen world. Verse 1, chapter 8, he presents a contrast. He says, first, who is like the wise, commending wisdom, and then who knows the interpretation of a thing? reminding us of the limits to our wisdom. As he continues to commend wisdom, he says it makes a man's face to shine. It softens the hardness of one's countenance. As one commentator says, when wisdom is able to solve a problem, there is relief and gladness. Verse two, he turns his attention to the king. He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him reminding us that behind any and all authority is the sovereign hand of God. Verses three and four, furthermore, says the preacher, obey the king because he does whatever he pleases. If you oppose him, he will punish you. And so it is unwise to resist his authority. Verse five, we are called to submit to governing authorities, yet, he says, because he's a shrewd observer of life under the sun, yet the wise in heart will know the proper time and the just way. So navigating through that relationship between human authority and our responsibility, he says, pick your spots. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verses six and seven. He reminds us what he taught in Chapter three, that there is a time and a place for everything and the wise navigate around the challenges of living under authority and yet, yet there is really no getting completely around it. No amount of bobbing and weaving can change this situation. He says he doesn't really have control in this life lived under the authority of the government. Verse eight, no man can keep his life from death no one ultimately has power over death. He uses an illustration. There is no discharge from war. In other words, once one is conscripted into the army and sent into battle, there isn't really a choice. One must fight. Wickedness, he says, won't deliver from the reality of death. And certainly we know there are many temptations to sin that carry with them a promise of escape, at least in our minds. Verse nine, once again, he describes his search for the meaning in this life under the sun, and he sees the futility in the power structures of this world. Man has power over man to his hurt. Political power takes away the control we have over our lives. Now, we don't live under a king, thankfully. We live in the freest country in the history of the world and I'm glad that we do. But for many, perhaps most, of human history, the daily experience is one of oppression. Consider the Rwandan genocide of 1994. The death toll was calculated as high as 1.1 million. Ask the victims, the Tutsis, how much control they had over their lives in the face of a tyrant. 
grateful to live in a democratic republic. But even here, we still live under authority, do we not? I think the past year and a half showed us the extent of that, the shutdown. You own a business? Well, you can resist, you can stay open, and then they will shut you down for good. When we think about the controversies and politics that the cable news outlets make lots of money on as they put forward people who are endlessly bloviate about politics and it's consumed and taken in, perhaps aggravating us, we can get angry. The reality is we can't do a whole lot about it. We can vote. That matters. But we only have one vote and we may live in an area where it doesn't sort of count. We can rage, but that doesn't get us very far except for a troubled soul. Listen, if you live in a homeowner's association, which I do not, I purposefully picked a house that wasn't, didn't have an HOA. Listen, you don't even have control over the color of your front door. Make a lot of money, well, a third of it at least is going to taxes. You can refuse, but you're going to prison. So we're reminded here that we are not purely autonomous creatures shaping our own destinies. There are forces over and around us that restrict us and compel us and shape our lives no matter how wise we are. And here I would say implicitly a caution to not place our confidence in political solutions. He moves on. Second point, he considers the authority of our heavenly king. So he turns his attention to once again examine the fate of the righteous and the wicked as he has done throughout this book. Verse 10, he sees utter vanity. In other words, confusion, an enigma. The wicked go in and out of the holy place. Here he's observing religious hypocrites. And at the end of their lives, they are given an honorable burial and praised by their neighbors for their great life. Maybe just making excuses like, well, he was a little bit of a rascal. He did it all with a bit of flair, ruthless work ethic, shrouding injustice, wickedness. Verse 11, he observed, he says, they didn't get what they deserved. Their wickedness went unpunished. The sentence was not executed speedily by God. And this even emboldens others who observe this to sin with impunity. I suppose if there aren't going to be consequences for wickedness, I can get away with it too. Here in verse 12 and 13 then, he brings the reality of a holy and righteous God into the equation. He says, though a sinner lives a long life of regular, deliberate sinning against God, yet we will note well whatever whatever appearances seem to be, he will not prolong his days ultimately because he does not fear God. For the one who does fear God, who trembles with joy before him and aims to live a life that is pleasing to him, to the one who reveres God and lives accordingly, it will be well. In the end, all will be well. 
we do well to remember then that whatever appearances may seem to be, God reigns over all these things, and he is a God of justice and righteousness. And for those who may be tempted to think that they can do whatever they want, even the most wicked kinds of things, if we're wise enough to avoid consequences, then we have gotten away with it, we would be in error. Psalm 7 says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Note, in Psalm 7, it does not say God is now actively executing his judgment against every wicked man and woman, but he is bent and readied his bow. Whatever appearances may seem to be, God is not absent-minded, he is not forgetful, he is not dull-headed. And the wisest thing actually we could ever do is humble ourselves before God. He has not forgotten the injustice and wickedness of this world, no matter how much it seems as if the wicked are getting away with it. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And even if we appear to get away with it, all will be uncovered and revealed in due time. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.24, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So that's sobering, right? God is a God of justice. He does not wink an eye at wickedness. He does not just simply overlook the things that people do in this world that are opposed to his will. But such is the greatness of his mercy and grace that we read, as Kirk did earlier in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, listen, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, perhaps one could look across history and see the wicked getting away with all manner of wickedness and conclude God has forgotten. God has forgotten to judge. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, but Lest we say, look at everyone getting away with it, God does not appear to care, he reveals the true nature of his justice at the cross, in his wrath, in his judgment poured out at the cross, executing his judgment against the willing, sinless son of God who died as our substitute so that all who put their faith in Jesus can be and will be delivered from wrath and judgment for our sin.
Now, here's, here's why it may appear to us that the wicked are getting away with it. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, so we, we must not deceive ourselves into thinking because God has not acted in various situations that we see that somehow he will not act. He is a patient God. He's kind. He is full of mercy. And that patience, though, will come to an end one day because we have the promise that the risen Christ is coming again to set all things right. And justice will fully and finally be done. Maybe you are a firsthand recipient of injustice that was never dealt with. Maybe you were abused as a child. It just seems like they got away with it. And you carry the pain and frustration of that abuse. Listen. All will receive justice, either in and through Christ or on that last day when he will judge the earth in righteousness. No one's getting away with anything. The preacher examines these spheres, earthly authority and divine authority, and in the end, he helps us to, final point, acknowledge our lack of control, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, more vanity. He reiterates a theme from the previous chapter. He looks around and observes, there are many righteous people who get treated as the wicked should, and wicked people who are elevated and made prosperous. And we are reminded that we do live in a confusing world. The wisest cannot discern the meaning behind this kind of injustice. Verse 15, he says, okay, in light of all this, I commend joy. That's great. I do too. Nothing better in this world than to eat and drink and be joyful, he says. What's he getting at? He says, instead of exerting our energy into seeking to understand all the ins and outs of the many baffling realities we are surrounded by, live in the moment. In your toil as you work, enjoy. Take joy in the gifts that God has given you. Simple joys from his hand. In other words, there is an earthy quality to our faith and lives as Christians. Yes, our mind is to be set on heavenly things, but our feet are planted here, and we are surrounded by the goodness of God. And so, rather than tying oneself up in knots and anxiety, because we cannot understand everything that's going on around us, this is an invitation to savor the good gifts that God gives us for his glory. It's an invitation to make lunch an opportunity to glorify God and to experience joy. Verses 16 and 17. He continues his quest to understand wisdom and its place in the world, this whole business of working and sleepless nights and existence. He seeks to observe God's work in the world and he concludes it cannot be found out. And we know that God is at work in 10 million ways in and around us, but we are only aware 
of a couple at any given time? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, however much we may toil to understand what God is doing in the world, we're just not going to be able to figure it all out. No matter how wise we claim to be or how wise we actually are. Well, you may think, well, that's what an encouraging word. But it is. It's it's realism. We are invited then to realize and acknowledge that in light of the authorities of this world and even more the authority of heaven, our ability to understand and control the world around us and our own lives is extremely limited. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with a realistic view of this life under the sun. And in the end, if we are honest about all of this, it leaves us longing for that which only God can provide. Rest from our confusion. Confidence that he is reigning and that he is good. Even when we can't understand what's happening around us. It certainly should provoke us to rely upon His word. He has given us his word. He has given us his precious promises. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness in and through his word. We know the very heart of God in and through the revelation of Jesus Christ that he shows us through his word. All so that we would put our faith in him in a confusing and difficult and fallen world. Richard Belcher in his commentary on these verses says, by faith we believe that life is in his hands and that the trials of life do have a purpose. We may not be able to explain everything in life, but we trust in the revelation of God which affirms what is good for us in life, in this world. And so we can join the psalmist in saying, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. God reveals this realistic, straightforward understanding of the world we live in and of our lives so that in the end, our souls can be calmed and quieted in him. So in all of this, this is not a call to apathy. We should get that straight. There's much to be said about the toil and work, which he actually talks about briefly in this text. We are called to do what's in front of us faithfully, Receiving his gifts, returning our gratefulness and praise. There is toil for us under this life under the sun. And certainly there is much work for us to do according to our callings to seek justice and righteousness in this world. I, I for one, am grateful for those in this church. And there are a number of folks in this church who have given their lives to work 
for the cause of justice in our governmental structures. I thank God for that. This is not, this is not a fatalistic view of life lived under authority. But in our frustration, in our confusion, we may cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And rather than living in anxiety and anger, hallmarks of this age, I would suggest, living in constant worry about the state of things. I think for some of us, maybe the healthiest thing we could do is just stop watching the news and stick to the headlines. At the end of all our efforts, we entrust ourselves to the God who reigns over all things so that our soul can be quiet and find peace in this confusing and difficult and fallen world. Let me close with this. There are lots of important and wise decisions we can and should make about our lives that carry significance when it comes to our quality of life, or prosperity for ourselves and our families. Listen, my, my nanny probably did extend her life. She lived till she was 92. But in all of this, we recognize our limitations. In large part, we just aren't in control of our lives. But we are adopted children of the King of Heaven, who is in control of all things. So take heart. He is in control, he is good, and he will bring us safely home. Amen.